1: Hello, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 10. In Episode 10, we painstakingly went through all of the wounds on Jim Melgar's autopsy. Most notably were the 31 sharp force injuries, as noted by the ME. But then adding to that, there were a multitude of blunt force injuries, contusions, abrasions, We had fractures to Jim's skull, his orbital bones or eye sockets, and we got into a little bit of the internal damage caused by some of those wounds that we mentioned. Now, this episode was not by any means entertaining whatsoever, but it did present a lot of facts and generated a lot of questions. So let's go ahead and get started. All right, let's get right into it.
0: Okay, and once again, we are joined today by Liz Rose. How you doing, Liz? Good, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Our first question comes from Fifi. Is the general consensus that Sandy was hit in the head while in the closet and suffered a seizure, or that she spontaneously suffered a seizure and hit her head? If it was the latter, was there something in the closet that she could have hit her head on that would have caused a hematoma and also a black eye?
1: Well, where she was laying in the closet, I mean, the wall was right there. There were shoes on the floor. But, Liz, you may know better than I. You probably have a better idea of exactly where she was laying and what was there. Do you know the answer to that?
2: There was a wooden dresser in there. I mean, that's really all I can think of unless she hit herself on the shoe rack. But I don't know how that could cause both a hematoma on the side of her head as well as the black eye.
1: Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing. I mean, certainly there's hard objects in there that could cause those types of injuries. But because of the locations of the injuries, it would make more sense to me, based on what's in the closet, that those came from some kind of a blow.
0: All right, listener Kimberly noticed the bloody tissue on the floor next to Jim's body. Bob, you discussed this tissue in part three of the crime scene episodes, but I know you've been looking into it a little closer this week. Where are we at with the bloody Kleenex?
1: So we're still, it's still a mystery, but um, to refresh everyone's memory, when we talked about it before, when I was going through the crime scene, like directly under Jim's hand is this Kleenex with blood on it. And at a glance, you look at it and you think it's like he was, he must have been holding it and wiped blood with it. And then it dropped out of his hand as he died. But in a closer examination, you can see that Jim's hands, the palms and fingers of his hands are completely coated with blood, completely And the tissue is not. The tissue has drops of blood. It it looks like it has some some high velocity spatter on it, as well as drips and drops, and then a large area of blood. Uh, But the point being, it could not have been in Jim's hand because it would have blood all over it. But as we looked a little closer, there were several listeners that were looking. I think Liz, you were part of that discussion too. There are other items in the closet which, when we look at them individually, don't really make much sense. But if we look at them in their entirety, it does start it doesn't make sense, but it starts at least paint a little bit of a picture. For example, right next to the tissue, it looks like there's a piece of dental floss and there were some other items in there too, but it it almost looks like a trash can was dumped out in the closet. Uh and Liz, did you notice any other items in there or, or what do you think about the whole trash can theory?
2: I'm starting to wonder if maybe a briefcase was emptied because of the contents of things that were on the floor.
1: Yeah, one of those items being, I mean, there's a there's a will. I think you said you say it was your grandfather's will. You can read in the crime scene photo against the back wall.
2: Yeah, yeah, I we, Well, actually, I know that that's his will because I have a copy of it from my dad's email.
1: Yeah, so there's a bunch of strange things in there: the will, the Kleenex, the the dental floss, and I hadn't thought about a, a briefcase. But then that you know a briefcase makes sense because of a lot of the paperwork that's laying around there. But then the trash still throws me off like where because that that Kleenex looks like it looks like if somebody had like a bloody nose and dabbed their nose with it or something and then would throw it in the trash. So I, just, I just I can't figure out how it got into the closet. And There's also a wadded up Kleenex similar to that, I think, on your dad's nightstand uh, without blood on it. But I didn't see in any of the crime scene photos where any of the trash cans were emptied. Were there any of the trash cans in the, in the house that that we're not aware of that you think those items could have come from?
2: I was looking at the photos, and I thought I saw all of the trash cans accounted for, except for the one in my room. I I need to go back and see if that one is still there. But the tissue, the candy wrapper, the cloth, some of the magazines that are on the floor, those could easily come one of these briefcases. And I'm still looking in the photos for a second briefcase that's similar to the one in the closet.
1: Okay. You think that the, the bloody tissue and things like that may have come from a briefcase in the dental floss?
2: Right. I just don't think a bloody tissue would have been in the briefcase, but definitely a tissue.
1: Okay. That makes sense. So, oh, so if it was, if the tissue was in the briefcase and it got dumped out and then it just got blood on it through the commission of the crime, is that what you're saying? Right. Okay. That makes sense. And it is consistent. If you look, there's the sole of a shoe right next to it. And there it's hard to tell because the shoe's black, but if you zoom in and look closely, there's blood spatter on the the sole of that shoe right next to it, and it seems to be consistent with some of what's on the, the Kleenex, so it looks like maybe it was in place uh when some bleeding was happening. So we're gonna dig a little deeper on that. I don't know if we'll find an answer, but uh it's interesting and it just throws a whole nother twist into things, especially if you're trying to figure out how maybe Sandy staged this. It just adds a whole other element. Like why is there a briefcase dumped out or a trash can dumped out in the closet?
2: Well, also the will would not have been in the briefcase.
1: Okay. Where would that have been kept? Do you think?
2: Uh, normally it was kept in the space.
1: Okay. That's interesting.
2: I did find an email from November, 2012 where they were looking to make a couple of changes to the will. So I'm not sure if it was taken out in order to do that, or if there's some other scenario
1: there. Okay, well, that's something we'll keep tracking as we move along. Okay, Lynnae says, can
0: you clarify if the opinions about fatal versus non-fatal wounds and knife consistency were the
1: ME's notes, or were they Bob's summary? The fatal versus non-fatal those were 100% my thoughts. Um, I tried to make that clear in the show, and if I didn't, I want to make that very clear. The report, which again is available on our website, the actual autopsy report, uh, does not make that distinction, at least not in the sections that uh, we went through in part one of the autopsy episode. That's just based on my experience uh, uh, with my medical training working on a first response engine at the fire department and then the ambulance, the, you know you know the types of injuries that can be fatal. So the cut into the the pleural space around the lungs that causes a collapsed lung and that that will eventually be fatal. In fact, it it reminded me of a particular car accident that I worked years ago where the, I wasn't on the medical team at that point, I was on the extrication team running the the jaws of life, getting the, the guy out of the car, but the medical personnel didn't realize right there on the scene that he had a very similar injury, and the man got to the hospital by the time, you know, it was, it was over an hour for us to get him out of the car, and then he got to the hospital, and he eventually passed away, and it was because of a collapsed lung, just, just like this. He cut to the uh, pericardium sac on the heart, that's another injury that, that oftentimes at some point will become fatal. The punctures to the liver, those are going to be fatal. So a lot of those, th- those are just my opinions based on my own experience. I'm certainly not a doctor, but what I do know from dealing with patients that had similar injuries, none of, none of what I see in my opinion, in my non-expert opinion, none of that to me looks like anything that would have even incapacitated jim as far as you know it's not like on tv you get stabbed and you drop down and you die i mean that he would have been fighting he wouldn't may have not even known what was cut inside of him they would have felt like maybe shallow cuts but they wouldn't have they wouldn't have stopped him these are all slow burn injuries that would lead to death in my opinion and then the other half she was asking about the consistencies of the knives yeah that's right i assume she means that there's a few where i said in my opinion that this injury is consistent with the chef knife again that's just for me. Looking at the knife, knowing the dimensions of the knife, you know it, it it starts at zero and as it goes back, it's a six inch blade. Uh, it tapers back and becomes, I think, right around uh, an inch and a half wide. Uh, but that's going to be tapered. So when she's describing a wound that is blunt on one end, sharp on the other end, that you know maybe makes a, a half inch laceration into the pericardium, but in it's you know an inch and a half on the skin. All I'm saying is that the measurements of that you could fit the knife that was found in the bathtub into that wound. Uh, that would seem consistent. But that's, again, just my opinion.
0: All right. And Brooks says, there's so many things about the prosecutor's case that seem crazy to me. But the idea that Sandy could pull all of this off with hardly any injuries is bananas. After hearing the Emmy report so far, multiple attackers seems more plausible. What do you think?
1: I think it's a distinct possibility, but I think we need more information um, when we're looking at the injury. So there's, there's a lot, and there's a lot going on. And as I mentioned, this is an extremely dynamic, Scene, you know it's when we look at and diagram these injuries and we're looking at you know a model of a body in an anatomical position and we're looking at all the wounds and you're trying to piece together well this one came from this angle this one came from this angle they must be left-handed or right-handed or taller or shorter you have to remember that this fight was moving so people are falling you know jim we know we've got he's got the the bad abrasion to his left knee at some point he scraped his knee along the floor he's got abrasions on his buttocks and bruises on his buttocks, like he was scooting on the floor or fell hard onto the floor on his rear end. If you diagram these wounds, one thing you'll notice is from just above the belly button to pretty much the knees, there's one little bruise above the knees, but that whole space, um, between the belly button and the knees is, is basically uninjured. And typically what that means when we're, when we're evaluating a scene like this is at some point, Jim's knees were pulled up guarding his chest. So imagine he's laying on the floor or in the position he was found. So his he's kind of sitting on the floor, leaned against the wall, but kind of between a laying and sitting position, there's an attacker coming from above him, hovering over him, stabbing downward towards him. And he brings his knees up over his abdomen to protect himself. And so the attacker has their abdomen against his legs. So Jim's kicking away with his feet and his legs. They're fighting against that, pushing back against him. And that's why that, usually, that's why that area, that space ends up uninjured. Now, we're going to get into more of that later as far as exactly how these wounds were delivered. Uh, But my point is that everyone was moving. The attacker was moving. Jim was moving, could have been standing at some point, could have been sitting at some point, could have been laying on the ground. Uh, But because it was a constant motion within this fight, it's really hard to determine if all these injuries came from one person or two. We also don't know the time between, and we're going to get a little closer to that in this week's episode when we, we read the rest of the autopsy report uh, and the anthropology study on it. But, you know, you, you have what looks to be different weapons. You have stab wounds that clearly look like they came from the chef's knife, and then you have wounds that are blunt force and forked and jagged that, to me, read like they could be a serrated knife. And then there's the the wounds, you know, the, the the blunt force to the face where the eye sockets are broken and the skull fractures. You know, it's hard to imagine one person stabbing, stabbing, stabbing and then punching or, uh, you know, and then we've got the clustered wounds, the clustered bruises that oftentimes are consistent with fists. It's hard to imagine one person doing that, but there's, you know, injuries on uh, the top and back of the head and then also, of course, to the front. All the stab wounds are to the front. But again, knowing that this could be a very dynamic scene, could explain some of that. So, for example, let's look at we've got an attacker coming from the front. I think we all agree on that. There's all the stab wounds at the front of his torso. But then we have cut and blunt force wounds to the top and back of Jim's head. Uh, Somebody's mentioned the closet rod. That's a possibility. But another possibility is, say, the person who's stabbing turns around and doesn't turn around but uses the handle of the knife blade instead of the blade side, the handle end of it, and they they start hitting him with that, with that solid piece. Now, maybe one or two of those blows connect with his face, his nose, his eyes, and then as they rear back to hit him again, he does what is instinctual for a lot of people and puts his head down in order to protect his face, and now the blows hit the top of his head, and he's curling up into a ball into the fetal position, and the, the next blows end up hitting him on the back of the head. So those still, because of the way a body moves, those injuries also still could have come from one attacker from the front.
0: Joshua says, can you explain how or if bodies bruise if dead?
1: Yeah, they don't. And that's one of the ways that an ME is able to determine if an injury is while they were still alive or if it's post-mortem because, you know, all, all the bruises is damage to uh, the capillaries in your skin and and your body hemorrhages and bleeds through them and creates these bruises. Your body doesn't pump blood or bleed anymore. After you have passed away. So bruises were sustained absolutely prior to death.
0: Samantha says there were a couple of abdominal and chest abs that seemed like they would require a fair bit of force. Is there such a thing as a force profile? That may only be a TV crime show thing. Jamie wasn't a very large person, but human flesh and muscle is tougher than it looks.
1: Yeah, I think the force profile thing is, is a TV thing. I mean, it, it is possible to measure force, but again, going back to what I had just said about all the moving parts, there's just no way to determine it because, again, that's assuming that the body's laying flat and you're taking a knife and stabbing it as hard as you can into his chest. But that's not what was happening here. He was laying down with his knees up and his feet pushing away from the attacker. They're swinging a blade at him. He's putting his arms up and trying to, in some cases, grab the wrist or grab the knife. In other cases, using the forearms or wrist to block the attacker's arm. So whatever force they would have had to bring that knife blade down is being stopped by Jim's hands and arms. It not, obviously, it wasn't able to completely stop it because the wounds did puncture his torso, but definitely stop it short and slow it down and not allow it to puncture in as far as it could have. So because of that, there's, there's no way to know how much force it took to cause these wounds because there are other factors to consider.
0: And then adding to that, Stephanie says, do we know if Sandy had enough strength with her rheumatoid arthritis and lupus to stab Jim at the depths indicated on the autopsy report?
1: Again, as far as the depths, we don't know how much force it would take because of the defensive wounds on Jim um but liz maybe you could speak a little bit to your mom's arm strength and more importantly to me is hand strength and grip strength because what i see is somebody that was able to hang onto that knife and deliver blows with a grown man trying to stop them from delivering these blows and one thing that would be really difficult it would be the grip on the knife so could you tell us a little bit about typically around that time because of your mom's i don't know you said she had arthritis and the lupus how was her grip strength? Did she have any issues with grip strength or arm strength?
2: So, you know, she had rheumatoid arthritis, which that on its own makes it difficult to grasp things and um, it messes with your grip strength. But also with the lupus, there's a lot of joint stiffness and pain and swelling in addition to the rheumatoid arthritis. So there were days where it would just be difficult for her to open and close her hands to open things, you know, jars or uh, whatever. So I just I just can't see how it would be possible that she would carry out this crime because she just didn't have the physical strength or ability, especially compared to my dad.
0: Britt says the waitstaff at Los Cucos wears white button-up shirts. Women wear white blouses. Has anyone talked to the staff that night? Is it possible that they could have been
1: targeted as early as when they went to dinner? So I saw this and I found it and and it's probably in or at least maybe kind of a a way out there theory. But as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, shit, because we had the, the white blouse, right, found in the in the tub that Sandy says, as far as she knows, isn't hers. And they were at Lil's Cuco's. And then I immediately remembered that Sandy said they thought someone was following them that night when they got to when they got to CVS and then home. They thought someone was following them. And then I went back to questions that listeners have asked about why would someone choose a white blouse to wear for a burglary? It seems like an odd choice of clothing to wear. So again, maybe, probably nothing, but it's not out of the question. It's, it's, it's something that I think should be looked into. And one question that I had was, did Los Cucos have a uniform? Um, some restaurants where I have worked at when I was in college and stuff, um, some of them had a uniform we had to wear. Then other ones had rules like when I was bartending that you had to wear black pants and a white shirt. You could pick whatever black pants and white shirt you wanted to, but it had to be black and white. But it wasn't a specific uniform. So um, if anybody knows or is close to a Los Cucos that that wants to stop in and have a super awkward conversation with the manager, uh, if we can get a little more information as far as what the wait staff wore, that would be great. Okay. And I do also want to add just to make clear, Sandy has never said specifically that that actually wasn't her shirt. She's never seen the actual shirt. She's only ever, it was like shortly before trial. So this is five years later. She, she saw a photo of the shirt when it was, you know, when it was still wet and, and she, she doesn't think that was hers, but she couldn't be sure. So I just want to make sure we make that distinction.
0: This one's from Leslie. I think we need more information on alternate perpetrators. With the level of passion that was shown in Jamie's injuries, I think we need to look at someone closer to the family or in the family. To start with Liz, I know she is active in this group and the podcast, but I have to ask, has anyone confirmed Liz's flight after the murder? I know she was called afterwards and she flew in immediately, but was this confirmed? Hypothesis is, Liz was already in the country when she was called.
1: Okay, and, and this is you know an awkward question with Liz here on the phone and being on the fan page, but it's a good question. Uh, and it's the same question that I had when we first started. You know, when we look at any case like this, um, and I'm going to get back to her point about the passion shown in the injuries, uh, because I disagree with that. But we always look at the the people that are closest to the the victim. And so when we first started investigating this case, you know, the person closest to, to Jim and Sandy is, of course, Liz. And so one of the first things we did was to verify that Liz did, in fact, have an alibi. And I had a very awkward uh conversation with Liz and asked her to send me confirmation of her flights and she sent me the the receipts for her her flights uh the email confirmations from the flights from Europe back to the United States, as well as her passport with the stamps uh, coming in and out of both countries so yeah, Liz has been confirmed uh, has an alibi she was not anywhere not even in the country, and that has been confirmed now, going back to uh, which is about the passion of the injuries again, you know I've said this before. we hear thirty one stab wounds, and we think crime of passion, you know that that idiot from deadliest women who Okay, first of all, she said you know it's thirty thirty second anniversary, and she stabbed him thirty two times. well, as I said, then, first, that's stupid, second of all, there wasn't thirty two stab wounds there were thirty one sharp force injuries, uh a lot of those are just cuts and scratches. There's, I think, seven actual stab wounds to the torso area. It, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the episode here, or a little bit ago. This isn't a person laying on their back and someone standing over them, going,
2: <clears throat>
1: just stabbing them over and over and over again. This is someone trying to deliver a deadly blow, and Jim is fighting for his life. And that's been a kind of a point of contention with a few threads on on the fan page as well, too. You know, the uh, the conjecture or whatever of the word fight to make clear. I'm not saying when Jim's fighting that he's punching the, the, you know, he's going on the offensive and hitting back. What I'm saying is he's fighting for his life. He's giving, he's putting everything he has at just stopping this person from killing him. And, and, in my opinion, the injuries on him, uh, as far as how they were delivered, where they were delivered, the angles they were delivered from, and then also the defensive injuries that he has, in my opinion, clearly demonstrates he was, he was fighting with everything he had to stop this from happening. I mean, and some of these are textbook defensive wounds. You know, the, the cut on his right hand. If you read, you know, we've got Dr. Werner Spitz's in here. Or if you just Google online and, and look at um, defensive injuries, crescent shaped, curvilinear shaped cuts on the palm, typically around the thumb between thumb and forefinger, uh, that are deep are the exact like textbook definition of a defensive wound and they usually come from someone trying to grab a hold of a hand with a knife that's trying to stab them and the stabs will then cut them right in that exact place. Uh in Jim's case the, that cut went all the way down to his tendons and it's not I don't know if it's just one cut or a cluster of cuts, because if we read that part of the autopsy, there are several parallel wounds there. One of them went, I think two of them went all the way down to the tendons, uh, but they were listed as one in-size wound. Uh, because it's a cluster, but it's a cluster of them. There's, 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 I think two that went down to the tendons. I think there were two more that were parallel. There were, there were other wounds that went in different directions off of that wound, perpendicular to that wound. So there was a bunch of wounds all on his right hand, right in the palm, right near the thumb. Uh, so this, the reason for the multiple wounds is they were, is the, the killer was not able to deliver that clearly fatal blow to stop him in his tracks and, and looping back to the other part of it. Uh, Again, I want to reiterate that Liz has confirmed that she was not in the country.
0: Melissa says, did any of the dogs have blood on their paws? Were there any marks on Jim's body that indicated that the dogs maybe licked or sniffed him? There's been a lot of questions about where the dogs were during all of this. I'm not a dog owner, and I know these are small dogs, but wouldn't most dogs come and check on their owners if they had access to do so or even try to defend them from the perpetrator?
1: Well, it's, it's funny that this comes up now because just yesterday when I'm working on the 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 second half of the autopsy episode for this week, and I'm studying photos and studying the report and I noticed something I actually texted Liz about it and and neither of us I think had really noticed it before, maybe she did, and I hadn't but there's blood on Jim's feet in a very weird way. it is clearly transfer blood it's not you know there there is spatter on his feet, which you would expect. But there's transfer blood, and I thought, and and what I had asked Liz is, does it look to you like someone with bloody hands grabbed his feet and moved him? Because it's like on his toes, between like on his on his toes, under his toes, bottom of his feet, and it doesn't make sense how that got there, unless somebody like after the attack or whatever grabbed him and moved him, but it doesn't appear to be moved. It's it's really strange. Because you know you can tell from the blood spatter on the floor and everything else he wasn't moved once he died, he stayed right there. But then with this question, it just got me thinking. I think that uh we'll just say last night, Liz, like you asked me what I was thinking, and I said, I don't know i'm but I'm thinking, I can't figure it out,
2: yeah, yeah, and so think of anything
1: <laughs> well, just now, what if it was the dogs what what if it was the dogs? What if the dogs had come in there and sniffed around? And were you know his feet were what was sticking out of the closet, and there's there's all these like bloody smudges on his feet and the bottom of his toes and the bottoms of his feet, but there's no blood pools with footprints. I wonder if that was the dogs, if they had come in and they were. I'm thinking about my dogs, you know, they'll sniff around like with their their cold little wet noses. I wonder if that's where some of that blood came from. That doesn't make sense. Is from the dogs? That would make
2: sense because. My mom's friend that picked her up that day, her daughter groomed, she's a dog groomer, and she took the dogs and groomed them before they gave them to my mom. And I, I didn't ask, but I always wondered whether that's why she did that, just to clean them up a bit.
1: That makes sense. Do you still have access to that person to, maybe you could ask them? Yeah. Great.
0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
0: 18+. Stacy says, "Do you believe more than one knife was used?" From the description of the wounds, it sounds like some had jagged edges and some did not.
1: Um, we're going to get into this in detail this week as we get into what's called the anthropology uh section of the autopsy. Um that was my and I and I and I don't know the I haven't gotten there yet. I mean, I've I've breezed through it, but yeah, as I said earlier, there are wounds that clearly could have been made with the knife from the tub, but then there are other wounds that that doesn't fit at all. They're jagged, they're weird. We've got the forked wounds on the head. And I don't know exactly what that meant. I know we're we're still waiting on. We have the crime scene photos, but we don't have the autopsy photos where we can actually look at a close up shot of each and every injury. Uh, we should be getting those. We're we were supposed to get them. Well, we were supposed to get them a bunch of times, um, but supposedly they're supposed to be coming out this week. To me, it looks like, as I mentioned in the, or I don't know if I did mention the episode, but it looks like there could, some of these wounds could come from a serrated knife. So, or, or a much smaller knife in some cases. So we need to get deeper into the autopsy and get the rest of those photos and then maybe ask some expert to try to give us some conclusions on that.
0: Pamela says, it took me a while to understand the SW10 sharp force trauma to the abdomen. On the diagram, the ME placed it right above the belly button. This does not correspond to her summary of a wound that would go through the rib and hit the heart sac. It seems like a big discrepancy. Just wanted to get your thoughts and see if you noticed any other discrepancies.
1: Well, I don't think it is a discrepancy. It's another, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's it's a great example of a dynamic moving fight. So, again, you're looking at a diagram where the body is laying flat and you've got a cut on their stomach that's stabbed into their heart, which is a long ways away. That doesn't make sense. But remember, if he's, say, curled up, like, on the ground with his knees up and his chest bent, you know, his his shoulders were against the walls, so he's kind of curled up like that, so the blade could break the skin at the belly, but that area could have been, you know, would have been shifted up over the ribs or close to the ribs, and and that wound said it had an upward tracking direction uh, of the stab. So if he's laying flat, it doesn't make sense at all. If he's curled up into kind of a ball and the wound comes from a downward angle up, then it does make sense. Because it's going to tear the skin, which when laying flat is over his belly, but when he's curled up is over his ribs and cut through the ribs and hit the heart. Joshua says, I might have missed somehow, but is there somewhere that shows what angle the stabs entered the body? Just the descriptions that I gave. If you go back and listen point by point, you know I tried to cut out a lot of the medical jargon and try to make it, you know, in in kind of plain language for people that don't know medical terminology. Um, But you'll hear that when I'm saying uh, the directionality was front to back, from left to right, and upward to downward. Or you know, they would say sometimes that you know, with no left right deviation from upward to downward, or no vertical deviation. That's that's what they're describing is the angle that the blade went into the body, the track of the wound. Um, but it is confusing. It's hard to diagram. I've tried to work on diagrams myself. I've got little, you know, on our, our our case board we have on the wall, I've got little drawings all over the place where I'm trying to figure it out. Um, but that actually leads me to to a request I wanted to make this week. What I thought would be very, very helpful in this particular case would be to create a 3D animated video where we could demonstrate how some of these wounds could happen how we could demonstrate because the orientation of the knife is very important too uh and if you didn't understand what i meant by that in the episode so when she says that one edge of the wound is blunt and the other is tapered or sharp that is so if you look at a knife you know the say the bottom edge of it is the blade and the top edges does not have a blade it's flat so that tells you what direction or orientation the blade went in and so and, and that's what i was saying as far as they didn't happen all at the same time It wasn't a frenzied like stab, stab, stab. It was a stab, fight, stab, fight, 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 stab, fight, stab, because they're coming from different directions and the orientation of the blade is different. So if, for example, if I was holding the, the blade with my hand and I stabbed straight in with like my thumb up and my pinky down and then the next stab comes in with my thumb down and my pinky up. Or comes in from the, a different angle or it was, you know, from left to right or however it was oriented, that makes a difference in which direction and how the, the knife is being gripped by the attacker. So what I'd like to do is see if we can pull together those of you that have this skill set to create three dimensional animated videos. You know, I thought about trying to demonstrate it with Mike or with Becky and it just, I just couldn't figure out a good way to do it because of the, way they were laying down i mean did not be falling on top of each other plus it's just super weird to do it that way and they both get tired of being guinea pigs um yeah. but uh listener west chambers volunteered i spoke with him last night and he said that he, he does three-dimensional renderings uh for in in architecture so he 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 does 3d animation type things for for architecture he said that he can do the room and and he could maybe do some of the the work as far as creating like a, a body or a person that would be, you know, you know, stabbing, moving around and stabbing, but that's not his area of expertise. Uh, so what he's asked is, could we get a team together? Because it's going to be a lot of work and it's a pretty complicated process, but, but Wes is willing to kind of head up the project if we can get a team together of other uh, artists, animators people that have these skill sets that, that can really help. So if you're able to do that, please send an email to our email address, which is theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Put in the subject line animation so Mike knows how to quickly find them. And we'll try to pull together. I, I've also reached out to Abby Scott, who does a lot of our animations, the crime scene videos, uh, the crime tracer videos, where it shows movements of people. I don't know exactly what her skill set is as far as if she can do three-dimensional things like that. But I feel like we've got a lot of people that are here and, and want to be able to help out, and there's got to be a, a, you know, a good handful of people that have this skill set, uh, and I think this would be a huge tool for us to be able to um, demonstrate different hypotheses and theories uh, as far as how some of these injuries happened.
0: Okay, Tara says, any thoughts on what may have caused IW-15 through IW-18 injuries on Jim's head?
1: So those are uh, the wounds to the top and back of his head. Uh, these are the ones that have blunt force characteristics as well. They have abrasions around them bruising, and they're also the ones that I think three out of the four uh, say they have forked ends, which certainly doesn't sound like it comes from a knife. It's been explained uh, by or theorized by some that it came from, you know, him hitting his head on the, the closet rod behind him, but I just, I don't buy that. The orientation of the wounds doesn't match that. Uh, and also unless he hit his head four times in the same place by turning his head different directions that just doesn't make sense that has to be some sort of blunt force injury and i think one of them it had a nick to the skull too so clearly some kind of a blade i don't know that's one of the things we need to dig in deeper and it's it's it kind of goes back to that question about was there multiple weapons or multiple knives used and on the surface, at a very cursory glance, without having any sort of expertise in the area myself, it looks to me like those came from a different weapon.
0: Natalie writes, Jim arrived at the ME without any jewelry on his body. Was his wedding ring stolen? Did he usually take his jewelry off before a bath or bed?
1: That would be a Liz question. Did he have, did he have his wedding ring on him and she didn't mention it, or did he not have a wedding ring, or what's the deal with the wedding ring, Liz?
2: My dad never wore a wedding ring. He never wore any jewelry. It bothered him. He didn't like the way it felt on his hands. Uh, The only thing that he ever wore
1: was a watch. Okay, well, that answers that
0: question. Wendell says, What do you make of the fact lividity was still blanching? Did they do other tests, like body temperature, to determine time of death?
1: Uh, I haven't come across anything, but as we've mentioned in other seasons, in other cases, uh, the time of death determination is... TV has really messed that up. Everybody thinks that, you know, Ducky from NCIS is going to stick a thermometer in their liver and in five seconds give you a 15-minute window when this person died. It doesn't work like that. We determine time of death by things like eyewitnesses, times when you can confirm the person was still alive. Uh, that kind of gives you a window. And then we we look at lividity, like Wendell says here, and, and rigor mortis. I haven't seen, I haven't gotten to that point. And if it's there, we'll talk about it in this week's episode as far as if the ME determined a time of death. But the lividity blanching, um, you know, this came up in the West Memphis 3 case, too, with people, you know, well, it's still blanching, so they haven't been dead that long. Well, this is proof to that point. It's the, first of all, the lividity was fully fixed. So, you know, that typically anywhere from 6 to 12 hours it takes for that to happen. Rigor mortis was set in the extremities in the jaw. But we don't know which end of rigor mortis that was on, meaning when rigor mortis starts in your extremities and works towards your core. And then over time, when it breaks down, it goes in the opposite direction. Um, so there's two different times in that cycle when it would be just the extremities had rigor. But in this case, remember when when the lividity is being tested and blanched. That is the next day on the 24th after he had been in a cooler all night. So at the very least. You know, it's been, it's been, what is that, from 4 p.m. to, Four. Oh, so that's, that's at least 17 hours after Jim's body was found. He had lividity fully fixed when the body was found. We have photos of that. Um, so to we'll go back another, so, so we're talking 24 hours minimum for sure that he had been dead before his body was pulled out of the cooler and they tested and saw that still blanched. So, it, it basically it tells us nothing. The fact that it's still Blanche's tells us nothing.
2: Even the time of death on the um, death certificate is just the time that he was found. They never actually gave an actual or an estimate of time of death.
1: Right, and typically MEs won't even put that in an autopsy. That usually when that comes out is at trial during cross examination or direct. Somebody one side or the other will try to get the the ME to make a uh, an estimate. Or take a stab at time of death.
0: Richard says at least a couple of the wounds were described as curved. Was this just because of the skin curving, or could these wounds have been caused by something like a garden spade?
1: That's probably because of the skin curving, or uh, where they're at. You know, so you get stabbed say across a bone or a forearm that you know the the skin a cut that would look straight as if you stretch the skin back out would look curved because it went around. Uh, or over a bone or a mass like that, or it's a moving body part. I don't think there's anything here that indicates nothing. It would would be very blunt. You Remember, she says the edges are sharp in these wounds. It would be a a wound from a blunt object like a spade or something like that that was stabbed into you would look very, very different. There'd be tearing. It'd be more tearing than cutting. Patricia writes,
0: The assault would have produced an ungodly amount of blood. After going over everything you have presented at this point, one question comes to mind. Was there blood anywhere else in the house? And then, Bob, in the same vein as Jennifer's question. She says, I'm at a loss at the lack of blood trail or blood evidence outside of the closet. Even if the attacker or attackers went to clean up in the bathroom, shouldn't there be a blood trail connecting the closet to the bathroom? Help me out here. How does someone cause all that damage with all that blood and prevent any trace of it as they leave the closet area?
1: Well, we talked a little bit about that last week, um, and for to begin with, Certainly, I don't think that's any indicator towards Sandy because whether it was Sandy or an attacker, whoever it was, they obviously left the closet and didn't leave a trace. But to me, my opinion on this is that is explained by the chair and the stool that are outside of the closet. Uh, At this point, I believe the chair and stool are complete red herrings. I don't think Jim was was sitting on them. I don't think he was stabbed on them. The, the, The blood spatter patterns on the chair make no sense. Uh, So everything, everything is there, the transfer, the rundown, the spatter, the drips, it's all on the back of the chair. But Jim doesn't have any injuries on his back, none. Nothing that could have created that if he was sitting on it. The only way it could have gotten there was if he wasn't sitting on it. So it was open and available for blood to hit it. And then also, you know, as I mentioned before, some of those droplets to me are clear indicators this chair was on its back. And then even the stool has no spatter around it that indicates that it was there when it got that blood on it or that that blood was sprayed on there during the attack. I think that the killer or killers after the attack stepped back, they sat on the chair or they picked up the chair and they stood in that place and cleaned themselves up. Maybe took the shirt off there, wiped themselves down, uh, that they did clean up right there outside of the closet Before they moved into the bathroom and then threw the bloody items into the bathroom. And there's marks on that stool that look like the knife was laid down on the stool. And then, uh, uh, some material, a towel or something was used to wipe blood and maybe fingerprints off of the knife. If you look, you can almost see the outline of the knife and then a cloth object that goes over it and scrapes away from it or wipes away from it. So I think that's how the blood didn't get from the closet to the rest of the house. I think that the killer or killers. Clean themselves up right there on that that chair and stool.
0: Vin says, could the reason be as to why Sandy was left alive was because they were wearing masks? Also, they killed Jamie because he fought back.
1: Yeah, so when I first looked at this scene, uh, and I, and I of course, look at Sandy as a suspect and look at if it wasn't Sandy, uh, and we're trying to start to do a behavior analysis, and we're going to get into all that, I'm going to do mine, Jim Clemente's going to come on and, and work through it too. But that was a big, big question. Why leave someone alive if there's a murder? And it was one of the things that to me was an indicator. This was not someone that they knew. If this was someone with a known personal relationship to Jim and Sandy, they would certainly they would have no way of knowing that Sandy didn't see, hear, or remember anything. They would have no way of knowing that was going to happen. So there would be, it would be too much of a risk to leave her alive like that uh, because they would recognize them. Uh, but then I thought of exactly what was said here. Unless they were wearing masks and gloves, and even though they maybe did know her and know them, they wouldn't be recognizable. So these are things that we're gonna we're gonna get into when we get into the behavior analysis, but yeah, that's definitely a possibility. Personally, I do. Jim's injuries to me are they do indicate that he was killed because he fought back. You, you don't bind people to kill them. Look at Sandy. They, she was bound and left. The, the, the intention was to incapacitate her. And to give themselves time to escape, to get away from the crime scene before they could contact nine one one. Jim's ankles are already bound. It looks like they were in the process of binding uh, his arms with the with the red rope, the lasso. You don't do that with the intention of killing someone. If you're going to kill him, just kill him.
0: Well, you could, you could, if you want to get something out of them before you planned on killing them.
1: That's true. I mean, there are circumstances that 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 it, it would be possible, but it's not consistent with Sandy. If that's the case to me. They're going to kill her, too, you know, just yeah. just to take just one person and kill them and leave the other one alive and tie them up. I mean, it's clearly this was a burglary, obviously, and that's arguable. But there are things missing there that, that are obviously missing. We're going to get into all that later. In, in my opinion, this looks like the intention was to incapacitate Jim, tie him up, just like they did Sandy, rob the house and get out of there. Uh, Jim fought back his proximity to the gun. And the, the transfer blood on the sleeves of the shirt right in front of the gun, his, where he was found indicates to me that he, he made a go for the gun. Uh, and then ultimately the, you know, the, the person that was responsible for holding him there or keeping him there or tying him up, uh, attacked at that point. And, and that's, that's just my opinion from what I see so far. We got a long way to go with that, but, but that's what I see is, is exactly that, that they killed Jim because Jim was fighting back and it just, it broke bad.
2: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Okay, Bob, in the crime scene analysis episodes, you mentioned that you were baffled by the plastic bag wrapped around only one of Jim's legs. Listener Susan brought this back up on the fan page and is also wondering how it could have happened, given that his ankles were bound. After breaking down the wounds this week, do you have any more thoughts on the
1: plastic bag? I'm still kind of baffled by it, but... So so the plastic bag is is covered in blood. There's blood spatter on it. But the ankle bindings clearly were in place during the attack because there's matching blood spatter down his legs, ankles, feet and the the cord, the phone cord. So they they were in place. It maybe makes some of the wounds make more sense and we need to get deeper into it, but this could have been an attack that spanned over time or it had maybe two phases, meaning there's an initial attack, maybe some of the blunt force wounds come they they attack him, they beat him up, they knock him down in the closet. During that struggle, the bag gets wrapped around his legs, he's laying there, and then they once he's down and and he, you know, maybe they're pointing a knife at him or a gun at him and say just stay still and nobody gets hurt, and finally he gives up and says, Okay, okay, okay. So maybe that's where, say, the knee got scraped. So he's falling face first, his knee gets scraped up, he gets punched in the face, punched in the back of the head, the back, wherever that, that's at took some of those wounds that don't seem to fit with the other wounds. So maybe this is a two-phase attack where that happened. And then he says, okay, he'll comply. And they start tying his feet up, and he's already got the plastic bag wrapped around his leg from struggle number one. And then they wrap his ankles up. Maybe he hears something going on with Sandy in the other room, or something triggers him. And then when they start to tie up his arms or his upper body, then he maybe pushes back and tries to go for the gun at that point. Also, an indicator of you know all the wounds being to the front of him, but there's the the what looks like bloody handprints on the clothes in front of the gun, that would be indicating if that all happened at once that he would be going uh, head first into the closet, reaching for the gun, but all the stab wounds are on the front of him, you know maybe those those happen. He already had blood on his hands from the first attack. He reaches up for it. That's when he's pulled back down, and that's when the second assault comes. So I don't know that. That's just just kind of me spitballing, but the. Uh, the plastic bag, to me, it, it at least lends us to start. We should consider if maybe this this was an assault that happened in two phases. Maybe there was a time gap between uh, between the, the initial assault and then the final assault where he, where he died.
0: So right now you could say that you think the stabbings happened after he went for the gun?
1: Maybe, maybe. Or or that him going for the gun triggered the stabbings, right? Okay. You know, that, that there was that the first assault was incapacitate him, get him on the ground, convince him to comply, he complies, uh, they start to tie him up, and then he decides he's to kinda of go for the gun, uh, and fight back and that prompted the stabbing. You know, but but maybe again, that's be clear, that's just that's just me kind of thinking through this as we're sitting here right now.
2: But that makes sense just because my dad has always told me, he always told my cousin, you know, it's things aren't important. You can replace things. So If you ever, you know, encounter somebody who's trying to rob you, you just you give give them whatever they want because your life is the most important thing. So you just cooperate and then move on.
1: So when you say that makes sense, you mean that something else would have triggered him maybe to fight back?
2: Right. So he would have cooperated. He would have given them whatever they wanted just to, you know, get them out of the house. So something must have happened where he felt it was life or death that he he was going to try and go for the gun. He would have held out on them. He would have tried to um, hide money or things. He would have given them what they wanted so that they
0: would leave. All right, that's it for questions this week. Before we close, Bob, do you want to let the listeners know about your upcoming
1: UK speaking tour? Yeah, so this is still, I don't don't have all the details about this yet, but I was invited to go to the UK by an organization called Just Killing Time. And they've asked me to come and do a speaking tour with, I believe the plan is, four different speaking locations uh, over the course of a week in the first week of December. Uh, the only one that I have any details on yet uh, is that on December 2nd, which is a Sunday, at 7.30 p.m., uh, the doors open. I'm going to be at the Wylam Brewery in Newcastle, U.K., and that is stop one on the, the U.K. tour here. And we're going to be talking about the West Memphis Three case is what they brought me over to talk about. So for all of you UK listeners that have are always asking if, you know, at some point we can come over there and do a fan meetup or do something, I'm going to have four different locations over the course of a week. Becky will be with me. Mike, unfortunately, will not be able to make the trip. Mike's going to be here holding on the fort, but uh, Becky will be with me. And uh, so uh, you can go to justkillintime.org to purchase tickets and for more information. And I don't think these are really big venues, so I think they'll probably sell out quick. So if you're in the UK and you're interested in going, I would probably hop on there sooner than later to get tickets because they're expecting them to sell out pretty quickly. So again, that's justkillintime.org, and we will be in the UK here in just uh, about two months. All right, and one last thing. Ed Aitz is doing really
0: well since he's been out of prison. Do you want to update the listeners on his situation?
1: Yeah, Ed is doing phenomenally well. His kind of reintegration with his family, with Kim and Kyra and Zach has just been amazing. Kim, every time I talk to Kim, she always uses the word he is thriving. Uh, and that seems to be exactly what he's doing. I, I, I try to talk to him every, you know, at least every other day. Uh, see how he's doing. He seems to be in great spirits. He's really, you know, he's got his driver's license now. He got his glasses so we can see. He got him a couple of earrings, you know, he was excited about. I didn't know he needed glasses. Uh, yeah, that's what was kind of the holdup with his driver's license. He uh-huh. went in and, you know, they didn't give him any kind of eye care in prison. Uh, turns out he couldn't see. Uh, so yeah, funny story. He ended up taking his eye exam to get his license with Kim's glasses. Oh yeah. That's because they were, they helped him out enough that he could pass the eye exam with those. And, and now he has his own glasses. She, she, I I didn't get a picture. He would not allow Kim to send me a picture of him with his, uh, wearing her glasses. Uh, but I've got a, f- a couple shots that he sent me with his new glasses and he looks sharp. Um, but, uh, the best news is he's, Ed has been out of prison now for, uh, what's today? Today's the 10th. So he's been out for one month and five days. And two days ago on the 8th, Ed started his full time job with UPS. He had a few interviews the week before. And he he got hired and he's working full time with benefits for UPS. He's he's working on the dock and he said he's just loving it. He's thrilled to be working. Um, as he put it, it's kinda of weird to be working for money now. Because you know, prison's kind of slave labor. They, you know, I hate to put it that way, but they, they make these guys work and obviously they're not getting paid for it. So Ed is doing really, really well. I couldn't be prouder of him and more impressed with not only him, but Kim and Kyron Zach too, how they've all just just what a family to, to come together and and to really thrive in this, this new phase of their life. So that's what's going on with Ed, and we'll we'll keep you posted and as uh, things move along. I'm sure at some point we'll have Ed come back on just to just a chit chat.
0: Alright, that's it for the follow up. Thanks everybody and thanks Liz for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. All
1: right, yep. Thanks, Liz and Mike, and thanks to all of you, as they said, and make sure you tune in on Sunday for part two of the autopsy episode. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of createdintandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, truthandjusticepod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at True. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.
2: Have lowered the prices on hundreds of everyday products. We'll step it to the roof, but making them feel Ugh. even greater. Remember, it's all in the knees, so garden tools feel larger than garden sheds. And lift!
0: <laughs> Find great value every day in store and online. No time
2: that strong! After all, springs a big deal at Dobby's Garden Centres. That's the shears. Now for the trowel.
0: Oh, Ooh. Dad!